sermon series we're going to be starting is called Created for Significance. And we're going to be exploring that very subject over the next several weeks. Today we're going to be looking at what is my purpose. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 14, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And today we're going to start a journey into discovering one of the most important things that you need to know about your life. A lot of people can kind of go through life just wandering, go through life with, without any direction, without any knowledge of what they're supposed to be doing. And that's a lot about, and that's a lot of the reason that our culture is in such dysfunction today is because that's what people are doing. They're wandering without purpose. They don't know what their, their calling is in life. They don't know what God has put them here for, even if they don't acknowledge God. They don't know why they're here. So anything out there that looks bright and shiny, they attach themselves to that, even if it's something that is not true. So we're going to be discovering that today and discovering our reason for being. Before I became a Christian, I placed much of my identity into what I did for a living. Most men do this. Um, but I found I never found really any satisfaction in them. I went through a lot of different jobs. Does anybody have like a, a box at home from their past jobs of name tags or anything like that? I don't know if you guys keep that kind of stuff. I'm a little sentimental, I think, and there's probably a box somewhere with all that stuff in there. So a few of the positions I've held in my life started off assistant restaurant manager of a Ponderosa. Worked my way up from dishwasher to assistant uh, restaurant manager. Then I decided to join the military, became an infantry soldier. Then I got out, went to reserves, became a mechanic soldier, 63 Sierra. Is that what you are? Bravo. You're a Bravo? Okay. I was Sierra. I worked on Hemets. You guys worked on Humvees? Okay. So I worked on the bigger trucks. Not that that makes me more cool because I couldn't do it today, but um, so I, I, would work, I got to work on a, a lot of the bigger trucks. Um, I was a mechanic for a whole three months of drills. So three months I showed up to the mechanic shop and they said, well, the retention NCO saw I was coming up on my um, renewal and said, well, you're kind of stuck. You're stuck at E5 forever because the guy that's over you, the head of the um, heavy wheel vehicle mechanics, he just got his E6 now and he's going to be there for the next 12 years at least before he retires. And so he goes, you're stuck. You're, you're staying as an E5. I'm like, okay. He goes, maybe you'll get a meritorious promotion, but those are kind of rare. But yeah, you're kind of stuck. He goes, but if you want to get to E6 next year, you can, act, you can go to school and switch your MOSs and become a nuclear, biological, chemical warfare NCO. I said, well, what, okay, what's involved with that? Six months of school. Okay, sign me up. So I went to that. So I had three MOSs in the military. Four, actually, because I OJT'd uh, 88 Mike, which is a truck driver. So after I got out of all that, I had a brief stint in radio as an intern at a, um, at a radio station in Oshkosh, WMGV. Um, in between that, I was a gas station attendant, mailroom at a newspaper, electronic assembly and repair, call center supervisor, and quality uh, assurance person, 
uh, for a medical call center, not one of the people that annoy you all the time and call you to tell you about your warranties or anything. After that, I went to paramedic. That became my identity for years and years and years, and I went to firefighter. Then I became a pastor, and now I'm soon to be an RN. So before I became a Christian, I would look to all that as my identity. I would look to all that as my purpose in life. And I looked to my career to find fulfillment. And before I became a Christian, that's, that's where I thought it was. If I could wear that badge, if I could have that, that title, that was what I focused on. That was my purpose for being. But I found that I always felt empty at the end of the day. I found that I, I still had not found what I was looking for. One of my favorite songs by U2, by the way. It's a secular band, if you don't know it. You can see that in my life, especially before I became a Christian. Even though I had all these jobs, I was still wandering through life. No real long-term plans, living in the moment, living day by day, and no eye on the future. And because of I didn't recognize this simple fact, that I was created for a purpose, a purpose that is significant for me and more importantly to the God who made me. It was because I didn't understand that, that principle as a reason that I was wandering. And it's my hope that over the next several weeks, we'll all learn to discover that God has a plan for your life. And it's never too late to find out that plan and start living for eternity. So that's the core of what we'll be stuttering or studying for the next few weeks. Today we're going to look at a few of the things that might hinder us from discovering the future that God has for us. So I want you to keep that idea in the back of your mind as we go through the message today. Because it begins with Jesus being invited to a party. You know, Jesus went to parties. Jesus was actually invited to go over to people's houses. So that's where we're going to begin. Luke chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking a hold of the man, Jesus healed him and sent him away. And then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into the well on a Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. Let's pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you take this scripture found in the Gospel of Luke and let it speak to our lives today. Father God, this isn't just an interesting story. This isn't just a historical fact. The Spirit wants to speak into our hearts today about how we are to view our lives, how we are to view our destinies, and how we are to view you interacting with us at, during this time. And how we can point our lives in such a way into a direction that you have for us, Lord. Father God, I thank you and I ask this in your name. Amen. Now when you look at this, when you look at this story in the Bible, you see that there's just a whole lot wrong. So we see the outline of what's going on. We see the background. The Pharisees invite Jesus to a Sabbath meal, which in their culture 
was a pretty common way of honoring a guest. They would have a Sabbath meal every single week. Friday, sundown to Saturday, sundown, sometime in there, they're going to have a Sabbath meal. But in this case, instead of using it to honor Jesus, they use it to try to trick Jesus, to try to trap Jesus into breaking one of their rules that they thought was in the law of Moses. So they invite this really, really sick man. This is this dropsy thing they're talking about. They're talking about like a lupus or a um, congestive heart failure where it's on the left side of the heart and not the right, or right side of the heart, excuse me, not the left side of the heart. So all that fluid backs up into your body and you kind of look like the Michelin tire man. We're, we're talking about something like that. And so you have this very obviously sick man probably having problems breathing. They bring him to to the dinner so that Jesus might be tempted to heal them because according to their interpretation of the Sabbath day laws, they, he would be working on the Sabbath by healing him. First of all, I just want to make the comment that if you're going to try to trick God, that's kind of dumb. I mean, God knows every thought you will ever have, and he knew it from eternity past. So you're not going to be able to con him. You're not going to be able to say, well, maybe if I just kind of do that, God won't know. No, he knows. He notices. He knows exactly what you're going to do, what you're going to say, everything you possibly could say if you wanted to say it. He is going to know. So you're not smarter than God. You can't outwit him. But the Pharisees, still, they're going to try to give it a shot here. Maybe they're thinking, maybe if we can catch, them break, catch Jesus breaking our rules, we can have a reason to try him. We can put him on trial publicly. We can convict him of violating the Sabbath. The law says Sabbath breakers should be put to death. We can get rid of Jesus. And the Pharisees are probably thinking, we got him. He healed the man. But then Jesus flips the situation on them, saying that they know that if there is a great need on the Sabbath, like a value, valuable animal or son falling into a giant pit or well, they're going to bring the entire village out to save this person, even if it is the Sabbath. And I don't think that this is just a random example that Jesus gave. You remember when he was confronted by the woman in adultery and he's writing in the sand? You remember that story, John chapter 8? And he's writing in the sand. Nobody really knows what he wrote. I think he started writing a name, and then they're presiding sin. A name, then they're presiding sin. And that's why it said that the first walked away and then to the last, because the oldest people, the older I get, the more of a loser I realize I am, and the more I know I need Jesus. So I think that, that he is doing something very similar here. I bet you he is describing something that had recently happened that last week or a week before, somebody they knew had fallen into a well on the Sabbath and the entire town came and worked to get them out. I don't know that for sure. I just, I just know Jesus' style and I'm kind of thinking that that is exactly what happened. Jesus uses it to point out and expose their hypocrisy to them. And I'm thinking to myself as, as I'm reading this, I'm like, yeah, go get them, Jesus. Go get those religious hypocrites. But then God's Spirit said, find yourself in this story. I'm like, find myself? I, you know, okay. So I close my eyes and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, so I'm definitely not Jesus. 
I won't even try to, to, to say that I am. I mean, Jesus is at the party. He strolls up to the front door. He notices that all the other guests have arrived early. I'm imagining all these guests on the front lawn waiting to see him, a bunch of Pharisees. Pharisees are very obvious to, to spot. They would, they'd wear all these clerical garments, and you know, you know that this guy's a Pharisee just by looking at him. So they're surrounding this, this guy that's obviously sick just to see what Jesus would do. So I have the scene in my head that this is what's going on. And as I think about this, God is still telling me, find yourself in this picture. As I said, I'm not Jesus, so I'm not that person. Well, maybe I'm the sick guy. Maybe I'm the person that's just so sick, the only help that, that I can get is from Jesus. But I didn't really feel a sense from the Holy Spirit that that's what he was trying to tell me. But there's only three kinds of people in this picture. Jesus, the sick guy, and the Pharisees. So looking at the Pharisees, who are these guys? The highly educated, spirit, devoutly spiritual people who had that position in the community as, as pastors, more or less. People had spent years studying the Bible. People had memorized most of the Old Testament. All 613 laws seen from Exodus to Deuteronomy, they had memorized every single one of them. They lived by it, they spoke it, they taught it, they were known for it. And as I looked at that picture, I felt God's Spirit say, you're the Pharisee. Now, I don't know about you, but that's kind of offensive. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't think I, I do that kind of stuff. And, and I, I don't think I, I, I put myself up as something I'm not. And, and you see Jesus here speaking to these Pharisees and continues to expose their hearts by pointing out their need for recognition and honor among people. And that's, that's what twists our relationship with God up sometimes, is that we have this very human need to be recognized for everything. We have this very human need to um, be considered to be the best, to be looked up to, to be the smartest person in the room, to be the most skilled person in the room, to have that self-sufficiency. We have all of that within us. And it makes us a Pharisee in that area. Jesus continues to expose their hearts by pointing out this in another way. In Luke chapter 14, verse 7. When Jesus noticed how the guests picked, up, picked the places of honor at the table, he told this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. So if you, the host who invited both of you, will come and say to you, give this man your seat, when you, but when you are humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I know that a lot of times when pastors stand up at the pulpit and they teach from scriptures like this, and they, you have a sense that they're kind of using it to beat up on the people listening. But I, I know that I, that I can't do that. I know a lot of people think that pastors have it all together. I actually had a whole page in my initial um, draft of this sermon telling you how we don't, but I, I deleted it just for time's sake. I know I've become, as I said, I've, as I get older, I'm going to go maskless today. I mean, I'm sorry, this is making my glasses fog up for some reason today more. I know a lot of people think that pastors have it all together. But I'm pretty self-aware and how messed up I can be. And I've been around pastors for 20 years, and I know how messed up they are in comparison to Jesus. And I know that you hear me say this over and over again within the last couple weeks, but it's true. Everyone who has ever existed, pastors included, and especially spiritual leaders, we're all just dirt having a spiritual experience. But in Jesus' day, this kind of pecking order was very important, very blatant. The more important you were, the closer you sat to the host. Jesus is teaching us that the kingdom of God is the opposite. Jesus shows them that when he says, don't seek the best seat. Seek the place of humility, and then let God exalt you when it's appropriate. If you want a life of significance in the kingdom of God, it may mean that people here on earth never realize it. You do that through surrendering your ego. You do that through surrendering your plans. You do that for, for, for surrendering your need for recognition and advancement, and you give it all to Jesus and let him handle all of that. Jesus continues his teaching, Luke 14, 11. I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit. When you throw a party, don't just invite all the nice, safe, beautiful, cleaned up people who are already part of your social circle. Instead, whenever you throw a party, use the opportunity to invite some of the not so cleaned up people. They might be dirty, messy, and not act right all the time. I'm just paraphrasing what he wrote there. It just kind of put it in the 21st century way of saying it. In fact, they might be like some of you before salvation, or maybe even some of you right now. I read about a church recently that wanted to start a homeless outreach. Pastor prayed about it, received a word from God that this is something they were supposed to do, and so he presented it to the congregation. Congregation really excited about doing this. People were volunteering their vans to go pick up people. They were uh, volunteering to come in early and cook for them, to clean for them. Donations started piling in. And so everybody was really, really excited until the first time that they did it. You see, the idea was to go during the first service. They had two services. Go down to the first service, pick up all these people from the, the skid row of their city, more or less, and bust them all back to the church. They would feed them, give them a meal, see. They had a couple medical people 
there to, to address some of their medical issues. They had some clothing there to help them clothe or get cleaned up. They had a shower in their gym and you know let them take a shower if they wanted to. And so in that hour and a half between the first service and second service, they would be meeting their needs. And then the people could come to the second service and hear the gospel. But reality hit. When a lot of these people didn't want to take a shower, didn't want new clothes, and they showed up in second service. All of a sudden, a person in second service had to sit next to a person who didn't bathe in a couple days. All of a sudden, a person in the second service, a nice put-together Christian person, had to sit next to a person that might not be using the best language. All of a sudden, that nice, comfortable Christian had to, sit to some, had to sit next to somebody who might still be a little strung out because they haven't gotten their fix yet for the day. All of a sudden, those nice, comfortable Christians had to sit next to a person and listen to them talk to their buddy about something that was making them blush. Emails started coming in. Phone calls started coming in to the senior pastor saying, we need to cancel this outreach. Pastor stood by his guns, said, nope. This is what God's calling us to do, and we're doing it. All of a sudden, the big givers in the church started calling, because guess which service they went to? Second service. You know, Pastor, I, don't, I just, just don't feel comfortable with my, my whole family sitting there with these people. I think you should cancel this. Nope, this is what God's called us to do. After about four months, he lost uh, between a third and half of his people, including all those big givers in second service had to lay off his staff, had to shrink everything back down. This is why these lessons in Luke 14 are so important to us today. God isn't necessarily calling us to the put-together person. He's going to call us to the people who really, really, really need Jesus. Some of the lessons that we see in Luke 14 is that God's word is powerful and he speaks to us through it. God's word is meant to penetrate to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It's to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts if we let it. The second thing he's trying to show us is that prayer is powerful. Jesus prayed over that sick man. He was instantly made well. As God's work speaks to us, we should be praying about what he is saying and how it needs to affect our lives. Because it's really easy to become Pharisees and get to the place in our life where we think we know what the rules are and we start living as if the rules matter more than people do. And number four thing that I got from this is I think the church, church in general, this church in particular, we don't necessarily exist just for us. We exist for them. God always wants outsiders invited to his party. Even though, and sometimes especially, if it's going to make us uncomfortable sometimes. There's a second part to this message that I want to get into before we close today. And it starts in Luke 14, verse 15. When one of those at the table with him, heard this about the poor, lame, blind being invited to God's kingdom, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. 
Now, for a first century Jewish person, remember these are people that have memorized the Old Testament. They know the, the law, they know the prophets, they know everything in between. When you talk about a banquet in the Old Testament, they immediately think of Isaiah 25, 7, and 8. Talking about the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all the people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces, and he will remove the disgrace of his people from all of the earth. So when Jesus is talking to them about being invited to the banquet, this is exactly what is in the minds of his listeners. And one of the guys there, one of the, the, the Pharisees, he blurts out, blessed is the man who will be invited at the feast in the kingdom of God. That's the same feast, that wedding supper of the Lamb, that you and I look forward to when we go to heaven. Well, Jesus responds to this man. A certain, when he said, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At, that, at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and in the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have, done, or what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in, so that my house will be full. And I tell you, not one of those men who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. It's a pretty colorful story, but it takes up a lot more color if you know just a few things about first century banquets. Number one, only great people, important people, rich people, wealthy people, could throw a banquet. We're talking about feeding a lot of people. Most of the people there would make our, our poor look extremely rich. I mean, they were living day by day, and they were lucky if they could even have one or two guests over on the best day, much less invite dozens and dozens and dozens of people into their homes. So when the rich, important person sends you an invitation to their party, it was a huge deal. You are also expected to RSVP that you are coming. So if you said you were coming, this is your word, you would be showing up, because then he's going to know exactly how much to order, and that first invitation would come out several days before the banquet. Now, just before the meal was actually served, remember everybody's coming from a, a fairly close, fairly close. The servants would then go out and walk down the block and start yelling, the banquet is ready. It's ready. You can now come and, and, and participate in this banquet. It was the second invitation. Everyone who was there, or who was to be invited and given their word, said that they were to be there at this second invitation. 
So then Jesus describes the people who refuse that second invitation. The first is a guy who says, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Well, it's kind of ridiculous. And I found this in one of the commentaries I have. Bible commentary Kenneth Bailey said this about the excuse. He said, this statement by this person is a bold-faced lie. And everybody knows it. No one in the Middle East buys a field without knowing every square foot of it like the back of their hand. He's going to know everything. The springs, the well, the stone walls, trees, paths, anticipated rainfall, how well the harvests are on this land. He is going to know absolutely everything before he puts his money down on it. And I would add, this is of why this is such a horrible excuse, they also need to know the lineage of that land. Because guess what happens within 50 years? Not that they ever did this, but by the law, what happens in 50 years is that field now goes away from you and goes back to the family who originally owned it, according to the law of Jubilee. So you can't tell me that you, are, you have bought a field unseen without knowing everything about the field. That's what made this such a, a poor lie. In other words, this guy was saying, of some dirt is more important than you are by ins even insulting this, the owners and the, the master of the banquet's intelligence. He's insinuating, you're a fool, and I'm just going to give you a lame excuse. The servant goes to a second home. At this home, the guy says, oh, I can't come either. His response is, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Again, a blatant lie. Most people here have either been on a farm, worked or grew up on a farm, know a farmer, or, or something. We're, we're an agricultural community. How many farmers buy any animal without checking it out first? Nope. <laughs> Not happening, right? That's why you actually go to the auctions. That's why you actually go to the livestock shows to look at this animal, to gawk up, feel them, make sure there's, there's nothing wrong with them. The same thing in Jesus' day. If this guy's buying oxen, he didn't buy them sight unseen. He would go and test them out. There's a field next to where they used to sell animals, and they would put these two oxen in the same yoke, make sure they, they were able to plow together. To put this in our modern language, it was like this guy was saying to the party thrower, I know I said I'd come, but I, bought just, I just bought five used cars that I haven't even seen before, haven't test drove them, and now I'm going to go and check them out. Well, you'd go, you know that that is just a stupid excuse, right? The third excuse giver says this, I just got married, so I can't come. This guy doesn't even offer an apology. He doesn't even say, please excuse me. And this one's even the worst one of all. Because in first century, marriages were announced a year in advance. No one is going to schedule a party on the same day as a wedding because weddings involve the entire village. In Jesus' story, he sees all this um, person throwing the party, sees all of these excuses, and he says, fine, insult me if you want to, but I'm still holding my party. Then he sends a servant to find hurting and needing people to come to eat what he has prepared. So the servant rounds up all the street people, everybody he could find in town. 
And he comes back and he says, Sir, what you have ordered to be done is done, but there is still more room. So the master opens up the party to people outside the city, everywhere on the county roads. When Jesus describes this part of the story, what the Pharisees that were there heard was this. So God rounded up the riffraff of Israel and invited to his party, and there was still more room. And he also invited people outside Israel, Gentiles, to his party. And what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, and what he's saying to us today, is some of you are going to reject God's offer of a banquet in heaven. You can do that if you want to. It's going to be very hurtful for God. You're going to hurt his feelings. Because he's going to see through any excuse that you might have to offer. And the meaning I want you to understand from the second part of this message is this is that God is going to fill heaven with or without you. He's on a mission to fill heaven. He's going to do it. And he might do it in such a way that you're not going to believe the people that he calls or the people that make it. He's going to do it with or without you. It's another good song by you too. The final lesson from Luke 14. God's purpose is to fill heaven with people from all walks of life. Earlier I described a church that wanted to minister to the down and outs, but many people were too comfortable in, a form of deli- in a, their form of religion that they couldn't be p- bothered, and they led, left for greener pastors. No pun intended. But I don't want to be that church. I don't want to be that person. I want Cooley Community Church to be a hospital for the sick. Amen? I don't want us to be a mausoleum of dead people thinking about the glory of days past. The church is to be a hospital for the spiritually sick. Max Lucado has a great way of summarizing this idea. If there's any author in my early Christian day, years that really spoke to me, it was Max Ucado. And in his book, God Whispers Your Name, he says this. And if we never agree, can't we agree to disagree? If God can tolerate my mistakes, can't I tolerate the mistakes of others? If God can overlook my errors, can't I overlook the errors of others? If God allows me, with my foibles and failures, to call him Father, Shouldn't I extend the same grace to others? One thing's for sure. When we get to heaven, we will be surprised at some of the folks we see. And some of them will be surprised when they see us. God wants to fill his house. God's going to call people, I believe, in these, these last days that we thought would never darken the door of a church. I'm not saying that a person shouldn't act right. Of course people should act right, but we also have to remember that when people first come to Christ, they're babies in Jesus. They're going to make a mess sometimes. And we have to start looking at people, not because if, um, from what they have behind their name, if they're Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, black, white, Hispanic, 
we got to throw down all of these separating things. Because in the kingdom of God, it does not matter. We are all children of God. God wants all people to come to repentance.